Peter chapter 3, I'm, I'm really going to be focusing on verses 18 to uh, the end of the chapter, but I've included verse 14 for context. Something I've mentioned here uh, several times even lately is that a practice of our church, when possible, I like to preach through books of the Bible for, for a number of reasons. One, one reason being that it keeps me honest, it keeps me from harping on the same thing over and over, and just because all of God's Word is important. And that really got tested this week because I, I, about Monday, I found myself wondering, I wonder if they'll notice if I skip this passage. And l- l- let me read you something to help you understand why that would go through my mind. Uh, Martin Luther, German reformer, um, 1500s, translated the entire Bible into German. You know, his translation of the German Bible is kind of the German King James, sort of the, the standard and, uh, and, and commented on massive portions of Scripture. He knew his way around the Bible. Here's what Martin Luther said about our sermon passage this morning. This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. <laughs> so we'll just wrap this up in 30 minutes or so. And um, good times. Well, let let me just say this. Like I said, I'm going to focus on verses 18 to 22, but I've included the earlier verses because this is extremely important. This recurring theme in this book is the reality of suffering. One of the reasons I wanted to preach on this this letter this spring is, is because of suffering, because a lot of you are. And in the verses before 18, Peter, yet again, and it won't be the last time, he brings up this whole thing about the reality of suffering in the Christian life. And then right on the heels of that, he says, for, and then he gets into this strange, obscure passage. In other words, whatever he's getting at in this strange, obscure passage, he's saying it because people are suffering. And before I read it, I want to make sure that we all understand this. The apostle Peter was not dumb. He was a realist. You know, he was told by Jesus before Jesus ascended into heaven that that he would be martyred. And there's nothing like being told by God in the flesh that you're going to be martyred to really clarify your thinking. He was a realist, and he knows that people who are suffering, they don't need theological riddles. They need something substantive to help them. And so my prayer is and my hope is that whatever we do with, this, with, the, with a very difficult passage, that what it's for, it's to help people who follow Jesus Christ. And not only as they follow Jesus Christ, but because they follow Jesus Christ, they're suffering. It's to help people who are hurting. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we always need Your help when we open Your Word. If it says the most straightforward, basic thing, we need Your help. But we especially feel the need for Your help, Your teaching. Holy Spirit, Your enlightening and guiding right now. Help us hear You. Help us appropriate Your Word. Don't let us treat it as some kind of academic project for us to banter about. Help Your servant as he speaks on Your behalf. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go any further... Uh, and, and really get into the, the meat and potatoes of this passage. And I may be a little more tied to my notes this morning. I like to wander off and not look at them a lot, but I might be hovering a little bit more um, this morning. But one of the things that, that is said in verse 18 that I want you to notice by Peter, he says that what Jesus Christ did was to bring you near to God. And I, I know it may seem like I'm beating a dead horse, but I, I want to emphasize this, that Peter is talking to people that he addresses in this letter. We've looked at this. He addresses them as exiles and strangers, which is interesting because not only is that a title that was used of Israel, of God's people in the Old Testament, and, and Peter, very Jewish, is applying that same term to very Gentile people. Now, the recipients of this letter, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, He's calling them an Israelite name. But it's also this. When you're suffering and you believe in God and you claim to believe that God loves you and has saved you and has rescued you and you have His favor, when you suffer and go through hurt, it can feel like He is distant. And Peter, yet again, kind of brings them back to square one to say, all right, back to square one. What did Christ do? He did what He did to bring us near to God. And I want you to know that. What he did is to bring us near to God. Um, he points us again as these people are suffering and as we suffer. The original recipients suffer and we, reading this, studying this, we suffer. He's pointing us again to the ultimate sufferer. It's amazing... If you look at this passage, several commentators brought this out. 
this text for all the weird stuff and the complexities, it's almost like a creed. It talks about he lived. He lived perfectly. And then he died. And then he rose. And he went into heaven. And all the spirits, good and bad, are subjected to him. It sounds like an ancient creed. We don't know if it is, but it sure sounds like one. Go back to the gospel if you're suffering, is what Peter's saying. Now, with that backdrop, let's get into the hard stuff. Here's the two big questions I want to try to get at. More on the first than the second. There's this talk about that Christ proclaimed to some spirits. Which spirits did Christ proclaim to? And how did that happen? And then the second question is, how does baptism save us? All right? The first question, to which spirits um, did Christ proclaim? Which spirits heard Him proclaim? Then how does baptism save us? All right, on the first one, let me say this. There are numerous interpretations of what we're about to get into by people who love God and believe that every word of the Bible is His Word and it's authoritative and it's without error, all that stuff, who've come to very different conclusions. And so my prayer is that I won't damage you <laughs> with anything that I'm saying and can, and can stick to what I understand to be from God's Word. One of the things that makes this whole deal about Christ going and preaching to some spirits, one thing that affects us is the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is a great thing. This is something that's been around for almost a millennium and a half. And hands down, slam dunk, the most disputed phrase in the Apostles' Creed is the part that says, after He was crucified, dead, and buried, it's talking about Jesus, then what's the next phrase? He descended into hell. And then after that, the third day, He rose again from the dead. There are numerous interpretations of what that means. Now, this is not, that's not interpreting the Bible. That's interpreting what did the people who wrote this creed, what did they mean by it? But people don't even agree about that. But here's the thing. When you have in English the language of, he just got through dying and being buried, and then he descended into hell, and then after that, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. What that sounds like is that in between his death and his resurrection, that Jesus went to the destination of hell. There are some real problems with that. And I'm I'm big on the Apostles' Creed. I was talking about this with Foundations class this past weekend. You can ask them. I'm pro-Apostles' Creed. But the reason this is a disputed phrase is, think about this. When Jesus was on the cross and he's talking to that thief who did believe in him and who did confess him, What did he say to that thief on Good Friday to comfort him? Today you'll be with me. Where? In paradise. Not later. Today you'll be with me there. That has to affect how we think about Friday to Sunday. And the other thing is this. What is hell? Hell, it is a real place. It's a real destination. It's not an abstraction. But hell is where the wrath of God is. Jesus had just undergone the wrath of God on the cross, and it's so important what He says at the end of that. What does He say? It 
is what? Finished. When Jesus undergoes the wrath of God and says it's finished, that means there is no more hell for Him to enter into and experience. It would be utterly inappropriate for Him to be in hell after the cross. He finishes it so that He never experiences that again and His people never go. Okay, so I want you to just tuck that away. Our mental picture, as we're looking at Peter, is affected by the Apostles' Creed. So, here we go. Let's wait in. First off, when did this happen? Christ proclaiming to these spirits who were in prison, whatever that means. The best scholarship that I saw helped me by giving this point, providing this point. When it uses the phrase in verse 18, excuse me, in verse 19, about Christ, how He went and proclaimed, where we want to apply that and attach it is that next phrase, to the spirits in prison. The best scholarship I saw, the best Greek scholars that I, that I interacted with pointed out that it seems that that best goes with the later phrase in verse 20, about the spirits who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. In other words, when we're trying to get at when did Christ go and proclaim to these spirits, it's not when the spirits ended up in this prison. It's when the spirits formerly disobeyed. In fact, what were they disobeying? They were disobeying what Christ was proclaiming to them. When did these spirits do this? In the days of Noah. Now come the problems. Noah lives way back before Jesus Christ took on flesh. How could Christ ever have talked to spirits in the days of Noah? All right, look in verse 19. I feel at this point like I need to say, look on your syllabus at page 125. I'll admit I'm more teachy this morning, but it is what it is, all right? It says that the way that he went and proclaimed, look at the beginning of verse 19. It says, in which he went and proclaimed. In other words, there was a means in which or by which he did this going and proclaiming. What was the means? Look at the end of verse 18. It says that he was put to death in the flesh, his crucifixion, and made alive in or by the Spirit. Now, here's what I want to suggest to you. Spirit there probably should have a capital S. Is the Holy Spirit ever identified as taking part in the actual raising of Jesus from the dead? Yes. Let me, let me read you something. Romans 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 11. All right, now we're just kind of building point on point here. So here's the point. How did Christ go and proclaim? He did it by or through the Spirit. 
Do you ever in any other place have the Bible describing that if the Holy Spirit is talking to people, that it's the same as Jesus talking to people? And the amazing thing is, Peter has already said that exact thing earlier in this letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, he talks about the Old Testament prophets. And he says that when the Old Prophets... Uh, when, the old, when the old prophets, when the Old Testament prophets, I guess they were old or maybe young, when they wrote, when they spoke, when they prophesied, the person who was really doing the talking through them, Peter says, was the Spirit of Christ. That the Spirit of Christ was working through the Old Testament prophets to speak and write and talk about grace. Amazing. All right. Who in the days of Noah could the Holy Spirit have been using to do this communication? If you read in the, in the account in Genesis about the days of Noah, it was sort of a, I don't know whether to say high water mark, no pun intended, or low water mark of obedience. The earth had become incredibly wicked. It says this in Genesis. I, I don't know another verse like this. Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord was sorry. You, you don't see that phrase a lot in the Bible. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. Now, in the Genesis account, Noah is not really depicted as a preacher. But guess who tells us that he is a preacher? Peter tells us that in 2 Peter. Now, a little bit technical here. The verb that's translated proclaim in our passage, Christ went and proclaimed, that verb is applied to Noah in noun form in 2 Peter. He's called a herald or a preacher, but it's the same term. The person who was the proclaimer in the days of Noah was Noah. Who was speaking through him? The Holy Spirit. But if the Holy Spirit was speaking through Noah, who else was talking? Who else was proclaiming? According to Peter, Jesus Christ was talking through Noah in his day. To whom? Who are the spirits? Now, this is where the, the interpretations go in all sorts of different directions. I don't normally do this, but here's where I've got to land. I'm going to say there's two, at least two ways you can interpret this that I think are biblically sound, and neither one of them will change the application for us. The first would be that it's the spirits of the people who were Noah's contemporaries. It's, it's the spirits of the people alive in Noah's day who were so violent and so wicked and who were punished by the flood. You and I tend to think of ourselves as spirits. We are. Biblically, we are embodied spirits. That's what's weird about the period between death and the return of Christ is that we're spirits without body or we're bodies without spirits. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, people who have already gone to heaven, whose bodies are on earth, are referred to as spirits, the spirits of just men made perfect. 
So what it could mean is Noah's contemporaries who are still in the body but who are spirits. And as Peter is writing, now their bodies are dead and in the earth, but their spirits are now in prison from their former disobedience. That's one way to take it. The other way is the one that I lean toward, and it's the weirder one. I don't lean toward it because it's weird. In fact, actually, I sort of... My ship of uh, interpretation steered to a different direction like yesterday. So this is hot off the press. And this... Well, the spirits that Noah and through Noah Christ was proclaiming to were evil spirits. Um, that sounds pretty weird. I won't lie to you. But here's why I say that. Number one, in Second Peter, when he brings up Noah, again, he brings up Noah in both his letters. Isn't that interesting? Right before he names Noah as a herald, as a proclaimer, he talks about evil spirits in the days before the, before the flood being denounced. And then you look in verse 22 of our passage, and it talks about what has happened through the work of Jesus Christ, His resurrection and ascension into heaven. It says He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And what's the upshot? With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. When you see those kind of phrases like angels and authorities and powers, it's talking about a lot of stuff that we don't understand. It's like it's talking about angelic governments and structures that we don't totally understand. But the thing is, it's whether they're good or bad ones. And, and I started thinking about this. Think about what happens in the Gospels sometimes when Jesus squares off with someone who is possessed, possessed by evil spirits. There's an example of this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. These two men come out, and when they see Jesus, and they're speaking out of their possession, you know what's the first thing they say? The first thing they say is, Have you come here to torment us before the time? Who told them that there's going to be a time? And this happens with other demons and other evil spirits, that they'll say to Jesus... Are you starting something that's not supposed to come until later? Who told them that this something was going to come later? It seems to be the case that Jesus told them. Now, whether you go with Noah and Christ through him was preaching to men and women, or whether he was preaching to evil spirits, what in the world is the application for us? You know, if I'm suffering... Because I'm the only Christian in my family and my relatives think I'm weird and I'm coming here for some encouragement and you're talking about like Greek verbs and demons. I don't, I, that doesn't help me a lot. Something that we've said that is a helpful template when you take up a Bible passage and you want to see how, 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 how is this about the gospel, ask yourself two questions. What does this passage show me about God who does the redeeming? And what does this passage show me about us who need the redeeming?
Let's apply that template to this passage. What, in light of what we just heard, what does this passage show us about God who does the redeeming? And as I studied this this week, it, it, it sort of gave me chills to think about the implications of this. That when the earth became so wicked and so violent and so ugly that you've got God saying something that I really don't know any other place He says this, that He's sorry that He made people and His heart is grieved over the whole thing, that in that context, Christ comes and talks. And we could go further than that, thinking about the implications for suffering. Think about the lot of Noah. It took, perhaps, a hundred years to build the ark. And I know it's weird. I know it goes into this period of the earth's history that we don't know a lot about. But the way the narrative reads, and for the rest of Scripture, it's not taken as myth. It's taken as historic narrative. For the rest of the Scriptures, it's understood that there was this long, long, long period where this man with his family who's sort of standing alone because God changed his heart not to be like all the other people in the earth, and he's building this ark for a rain when the earth has never seen rain. Don't, I mean, can you imagine the scoffing, the taunting, the trash talking, the insults, the condescension that he endured for decades? And at that point, what does Jesus Christ do? He comes in and he speaks through Noah to say one of two things, or maybe both. Either to say, Noah, continue going because this vile, hateful, ugly generation will be no more. Or, if he's really more speaking directly to the spirits, and this is the one that kind of gave me chills, it is, it's Jesus when the earth is just dark coming and saying, not so much to people, but to spirits, I will destroy your kingdom. It will be a long time from now. But you know, a thousand years to the Lord are as a day. I will come. Not just this man. I will come. And I will destroy your kingdom. How they needed to hear that. Isn't it weird to speak of evil spirits needing to hear something? They need to hear that. And Noah needed to hear it. And we need to hear it because he fulfilled it and did it. That's the God that we serve. What does the passage show us about us who need the redeeming? And this one's not so comforting. And it's this. This is especially true in our cultural context. We can very easily fall into viewing sermons as spectator sports. I'm a preacher and I've done it. Before I moved to Greenville, I was a campus minister, so I was in the position of being an ordained minister, not usually preaching on Sunday, but sitting in the pew or in the chair. And if anybody can be ruthless in their critiques, it's ministers. It's like seminary gives you all the tools of the lab to dissect a sermon, even more, you know, vociferously. But are sermons spectator sports? 
you don't have to turn to this if you have a Bible. Just maybe write this down. In one of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says an amazing thing. And it has everything to do with whether this time right now is going to benefit us or not. Paul says that when he was with the Thessalonians and he preached to them, and other laborers for the gospel preached to them, not right, but preach, and not just apostles, but his co-laborers, Paul commends the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I commend you because when we did that, you received it, not as the word of men, but as what it actually is, the word of God. Do you know, in church history, and this was a big deal in the Protestant Reformation, do you know what preaching was understood to be? I don't mean when a preacher says heresy. I don't mean when a preacher tells stories to make people feel better. I mean when a preacher, however frail or uninteresting or monotone or illustrationless the preacher may be, when he opens the Word of God and preaches it faithfully, he is not just preaching about the Word of God. And that's how we tend to treat it. How did he do on that talk about the Bible? He's not so much preaching about the Word of God as he is preaching the Word of God. And what that means for us is this. Is Brian Habig the voice of God? No. But when I or someone else called to do this opens up the Word after studying, after praying, and with fear and trembling, seeks to divide it correctly and accurately and only say what is true to it and try to apply it to our hearts, is that the Word of God or is it a talk about the Word of God? It is the Word of God. And what I would propose to you right now is that not only through the text of Scripture, but through the preaching of the Word, Jesus is talking to you. And it may be that what you really need to hear this morning is this, is that, you know, suffering is crummy. I don't like the ways I'm suffering, whether it's relational or spiritual or financial, health, whatever. I don't like how I'm suffering. But I know this, it's not always going to be this way. And we can go further. That everything in this world that is fallen, every spiritual power and influence that is at odds with God and that hinders truth and beauty and goodness and loves sin and ugliness and addiction and violence will be destroyed now, that brings us to the second point. How does baptism save you? I, I owe that we had more time. Let me state the obvious. It, that cannot... You have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. That phrase cannot mean if you get baptized, you automatically go to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter how you respond. If you get water administered to you, you automatically go to heaven. There are examples in the New Testament of baptized people who are described as perishing. Paul had a guy that traveled with him on missionary journeys who definitely would have been baptized, a guy named Demas, who left the faith. 
not saved. What does it mean that it saves us? And and Peter says this, somehow baptism is like what happened to Noah with the flood in the ark. He just got through talking about that. Then he says this, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, to Noah, the ark, the flood, the judgment, Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What in the world does that mean? Think about how the lives of the men and women who are suffering in Asia Minor, how their lives are like Noah's life and his family's life. These people in Asia Minor, are a minority in an area that is hostile to their beliefs. And that was the situation of Noah and his family. And God gives them a difficult calling. Be different. Be holy. Walk in my ways. Even as the culture around you is utterly opposed to me in my ways. That was Noah's situation. And the people who are reading this letter, that's their situation. But what else is the parallel? Noah, I'm going to send a judgment that you will not believe, but I'm going to save you and your family. And even as you're building this craft that's going to be the the mechanism for saving you, I'll be the one saving you, not the mechanism. But even as you're building it, you may wonder, are these things true? Are these things real? But the judgment will come. How are Peter's, the recipients of this letter, in the same situation? God is saying to them and to us just as really, just as truly, there is a coming judgment in which I will set all things right, but I'm going to save you. And the sign of that is your baptism. And think about this. See, because we can't see our baptism. Once the water evaporates, it's gone. Moise might, might already be dry by now. Or you may have been baptized when you were so young that you never could have seen it. Think about how Noah, for the rest of his life after the flood, could look at that ark. I mean, it didn't rot in a week. It was probably the size of a football field. For the rest of his life, he could look at that thing and say, Man, I thought, I just, I I knew God was going to do what he was going to do, but I didn't know that God was going to do what he was going to do. But man, God did what he was going to do. I'll never forget it. What can we look at if we've been baptized into this faith? What can we look at that frees us up to say, It sounds like crazy talk. It sounds like wacko, hyper-spiritual crazy talk to say, one of these days, God in the flesh is going to appear in the clouds and He's going to set all things right and all unemployment and disease and all that will be made right. All the tears will be wiped away. It sounds like this fiction. What can I look at and know that the promise will come true? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's nice to talk about this other days than Easter. The tomb in Jerusalem is empty. 
the witnesses who saw him were at least in the hundreds, if not the thousands. The New Testament scriptures were, were written while they were alive. The way we can know that one day this frail body of mine that gets tired and sick and finally dies and decays won't always be like this. It's because of His body. That Jesus, who became sad, He was sad. He had joy, but He was familiar with sorrow and filled with grief. And He's the one guy that deserved not to be. He became sad, but He is sad no more. He is at the Father's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And the guarantee that you can look at and know that I will have that one day if I'm in Him is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that tomb is empty because He's there. What do we do with this? There is no promise... There is no promise that everything for you that's hard right now is going to get easier. In fact, there seem to be more promises in the New Testament that we will keep on suffering. We will feel it in our souls and we will feel it in our bodies. And finally, we will pass. But it will be changed. There will be a new heaven, and there will be a new earth. And when Jesus comes back to establish that, one of two things will be true. You will either be in Christ, and you'll stand in His merits, with His credit, or you will stand with your own. And I want to say something as we close in love. If you're going to stand before the living God, Even if it sounds like crazy talk this morning, listen, I sympathize. These are supernatural claims. But if you will stand before the living God in your own merit, it will be your doom. Because you'll stand before somebody who hates everything wrong in this world that maybe you hate too, but knows all our inconsistencies and will give what is fair. Not what is cruel, what is fair. Go to Christ. Put this PR campaign down. And believe on one who can be your righteousness before the living God. And walk with you through it. If you are in Christ, I want to remind you. Even as you suffer, He is with you to the end of the age. There will be a judgment one day. It will not touch you. It deserves to touch us. We deserve for it to touch us. It will not touch you. And your suffering will end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is... This is difficult ground confusing words, but 
if nothing else, we praise You that Jesus Christ overcame sin and death, that He overcame the powers of evil, that He's brought His people near to God where we need to be, that He has saved us from the wrath to come, that He loves this world, that He loves sinners, that He loves people who do not even yet know that they need Him. Lord, may it be that every man and woman and child in this room will cling to You, cling to Your Son for life, for redemption, for strength in the suffering that we endure. We pray in His name. Amen.